Exceptional Marcus Pierce. Rockstar Damien Christoph. The Wellness Summit is almost upon us and we have so many prizes and giveaways before the summit even begins this year, MP. That's right, Damo. There's a very exciting Facebook giveaway running this week only over at the Wellness Couch. One of our new exhibitors at this year's summit is Solid Technics Cast Iron and Beautiful Non-Stick Cookware. And they are giving away over $400 in prizes to one lucky Wellness Couch listener. All you need to do is go to The Wellness Couch's Facebook page and follow the prompts. The lucky winner will also receive a double pass to this year's Wellness Summit September 10 11 at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. How cool is that? So go check out the Wellness Couch on Facebook to enter and remember to immerse yourself in 16 hours of powerhouse wellness with Damo, myself and over 40 other health and wellness experts. Go to thewellnesssummit.com and enter the code SOLIDSUMMIT for $100 off your ticket before they sell out. That's thewellnesssummit.com. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to The Wellness Guys Show with wellness experts, Dr. Lawrence Tam, Dr. Damien Christoph, and Dr. Brett Hill. Welcome to The Wellness Guys. I'm Lawrence Tam. I'm Damien Christoph. And I'm Brett Hill. And this is The Wellness Guys Show, a weekly show dedicating bringing wellness into our lives. Guys, five years in, we got, uh, we're already a few episodes into the, our fifth year. This has been exciting times. Uh, we've both been, a couple of us have been away, and uh, but we finally got on, three of us on the call, and we got some, we always challenging The Wellness Guys Show to bring on interesting guests and, uh, you know, topics that uh, we haven't talked about in the last five years, which is pretty hard to do, I would imagine, guys. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's yeah but there's hard. always new stuff. There's always new stuff being researched and new stuff being discovered. You know, we like to try and bring some cutting edge stuff from, you know, from researchers in the field, which is what we're going to do today, which is exciting. So, Damien, would you like to introduce our special guest for today? I would love to, boys. I would love to. Guys, um, you know that gastrointestinal system is a big, a big thing for me. I love it. Having been a naturopath for so many years and then obviously now into chiropractic and but also natural medicine and digestion and food and all that sort of stuff, it's very exciting for me to understand more about the science that's happening with the gastrointestinal system. So when we had the opportunity to do this interview and I found out that this particular gentleman is um, currently the Associate Dean for Clinical, uh, clinical for the Faculty of of Health and Biomedical Sciences um, and the Faculty of Health and Behavioral Sciences at the University of Queensland, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this guy knows some stuff. But one of the things that he does look at is uh, is gastroenterology and hepatology, uh, which is the liver and the gastrointestinal system um, at, at a hospital, the Princess Alexandra Hospital in Queensland. And he focuses on the gastrointestinal system, the nervous system, which is right up my alley. I thought, We've got to get this guy. So we uh, we got in touch with uh, with a great uh, PR group, and they put us in touch with Professor Holtman. And uh, I'd like to welcome Professor Gerald Holtman to this call to uh, to help us understand more about irritable bowel disease or irritable bowel syndrome um, in today's chat. So, Professor Holtman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Professor Holtman, um, many people uh, suffer with irritable bowel syndrome and in the past we've, um, as naturopaths and as gastroenterologists, we've often been faced with um, trying to determine whether or not it's an organic cause of irritable bowel syndrome or a psychosomatic cause of irritable bowel syndrome and, and it's been a very, very confusing sort of minefield to kind of negotiate and navigate through. Um, what what's happening in the field of irritable bowel syndrome and gastroenterology around the understanding of irritable bowel syndrome at the moment, and, and where are we heading with it? 
I mean, first of all, um, we face slightly changing definitions, and this may be a little bit difficult for the public to understand the concepts. But in a nutshell, we have so-called organic diseases. This could be inflammatory bowel disease, could be peptic ulcer disease, reflux disease, where we have clearly defined structural abnormalities or disease mechanisms which can be identified in the clinical setting. Therefore, you do an endoscopy, you do an X-ray or other tests, and you find something which is wrong, and you can treat it, and this is an organic disease. And then we have a other group where patients have symptoms referred to the gastrointestinal tract, but with the normal diagnostic tests, blood tests, X-rays, or even endoscopies, you don't find significant abnormalities that explain the symptoms. Sometimes you find abnormalities um, like diverticular in the colon, but they don't explain the symptoms. And when we have symptoms that are not explained by clear structural or biochemical abnormalities, we refer to these patients as patients who have so-called functional gastrointestinal disorders. Because in the past we thought that disordered function is the cause for the symptoms. And you mentioned the so-called irritable bowel syndrome or IBS, which is one group. IBS is defined by this kind of symptoms referred to the gastrointestinal tract associated with an alteration of bowel movements. Therefore, these patients are characterized by diarrhea, constipation, or alternating alternation between diarrhea and constipation. And they need to have the symptoms not just acutely for a couple of days. Typically, we expect that patients have the symptoms for at least six months and that the symptoms are relevant. Therefore, it's not just a little bit concerned about something, but the symptoms are severe enough to affect the daily life or the quality of these patients. And we have so far these two groups, structural abnormalities on the one side and just the belief that there's altered function in the other group. And this is a traditional delineation, but in recent years we have recognized that there are common denominators. For example, in subgroups of patients with so-called functional GI disorders, we're able to discover that these patients have an immune activation. Therefore, there's an inflammatory process um, which is not easily identified if we count inflammatory cells in the mucosa, we see that as compared to healthy controls, the number of inflammatory cells is increased, but it's not this massive increase that would be typical for patients who has a clear inflammatory bowel disorder. And the other aspect is typically in these patients who have the so-called functional GI disorders, two out of three, if they are severely affected, have some kind of psychosomatic comorbidities or psychiatric comorbidities. Therefore, they have anxiety disorders, depression. And this makes the treatment quite difficult because on the one hand, you have GI symptoms. On the other hand, you have a patient who is concerned, anxious, and this actually um, sometimes leads to the conclusion in the clinical setting that the symptoms are not real. It's only a problem of perception but we now realize that there are common links. If you have immune activation, 
you're more sensitive, therefore you perceive normal function as a symptom and it is, can be very severe symptoms. And this immune activation at the same time is linked to anxiety and depression or causes anxiety and depression. Therefore, um, this is at the moment quite difficult to diagnose. We need very specific tests, but the future will show us how to treat these patients based upon this new pathophysiologic understanding. Well, I think that's really important and it's really exciting for us to understand because it seems to me that in, in previous times, many of these people would be diagnosed as uh, purely psychosomatic because perhaps we didn't have the same understanding of these functional disorders or organic disorders that you're talking about. So, so we would not find anything you know, clinically wrong and, and suggest perhaps it seemed like that we would often suggest that it was just purely psychosomatic. So it seems like you're, you're saying there's a better understanding of that now, maybe a better ability to diagnose that there's more going on than just well it's all in your head indeed I mean if you have a structural abnormality you typically have a treatment which targets this abnormality be it um, an acid inhibition if it's reflux disease or be it an immune modulator if you have severe Crohn's disease but if you have just symptoms and you're depressed and anxious well the only option you have is to reassure the patients and if the depression is significant enough, you may consider antidepressive therapy, but it does not necessarily help if you have severe abdominal symptoms at the same time. Professor, what's, uh, what percentage are people uh, of, you know, that are actually uh, structural? And if, and also the, the second question, and part B of that question, it would be, is what are the most typical structural problems that we find? Um, if we look at population or patient groups who present to a GP, then approximately 50% have an organic cause for the symptoms and the other 50% have a so-called functional gastrointestinal disorder. And this refers to patients who have chronic symptoms. You may have an acute infection and we'll take this out of the equation. Therefore, around about 50% organic, 50% um, functional. If we look into the category of the so-called organic diseases, certainly the leading cause of, of um, symptoms is nowadays reflux disease, therefore um, heartburn, regurgitation, which are due to excess acid in the esophagus, and this is to some degree related to our dietary habits and also to the um, endemic of obesity. More and more patients or people get overweight and being overweight is a risk factor to develop this. Other organic diseases are peptic ulcer disease. Fortunately, due to the targeted treatment of helicobacter, this has become less frequent. Um, on the other hand, peptic ulcers can also be caused or induced by the consumption or treatment with antirheumatics, the so-called NSAIDs. And they can cause ulcers. These ulcers can cause bleedings, but they also can cause symptoms that are then um, bringing the, the patient to the doctor. And then we have the group of the so-called inflammatory bowel disease, but they are typically less than 1% or 2% of patients who present with chronic GI symptoms, and they are really then long-term managed with the specialist and not seen um, in the GP setting that much. 
Professor Holtman, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated right now because you started to mention upper gastrointestinal tract um, disorders, you know, functional disorders, and and um, um, and, and you know, you know, significant problems that I, given that irritable bowel syndrome implies that it's mainly the bowel that's going to be, you know, impacted. You're talking about um, peptic ulcers, which is, you know, what I would consider to be upper digestive um, and, you know, and also esophageal, you know, conditions, which I would have also thought to be upper digestive. But does irritable bowel syndrome now include the whole of the digestive tract? Um, That's a very good question. In the clinical setting, Um, many clinicians label this big group of so-called functional gastrointestinal disorders. This is an IBS patient. And um, if we look at the very precise definitions, it's not correct. Um, IBS is characterized by alterations of bowel movements, therefore constipation, diarrhea, or a mixture of both, plus abdominal pain, discomfort. On the other hand, if we look into patient cohorts, therefore patients who are seen in large outpatient units, the majority of patients actually does not have an isolated IBS syndrome. The majority of patients has an overlap. Therefore, less than 10% of patients fall into the category of functional dyspepsia. These are patients who have upper abdominal pain, meal-related symptoms, no alterations of the bowel habits, and no structural abnormalities. And of all patients who have this kind of upper abdominal symptoms, 90% at the same time have symptoms referred to the lower gut. Therefore, there is a very interesting overlap of lower and upper gut symptoms. And this could point towards the, the fact that the generation of symptoms is not just linked to a specific organ like the colon, the stomach, or the esophagus, but this is related to a more systemic alteration of the processing of information that rises from the gut, or even that the symptom generation is linked to an altered brain function. So, Professor, for people listening at home, you know, and if they're thinking, well, you know, I do have some of these symptoms, um, how do they know whether it's just, you know, a short-term thing or perhaps they they haven't eaten so well and that their stomach's just a bit upset or that they've been a bit stressed versus it's more of a longer-term issue and it is uh, irritable bowel or one of these conditions? And, And if it is one of those, is there any way of them telling whether it might be, you know, psychosomatic or organic or functional or is it really something they just need? Need to go and get tested for? Ultimately, if you want to do the differentiation, whether it's organic or functional, you need to do the proper test. Nevertheless, if somebody is 25, um, has chronic symptoms, there are no alarm symptoms, which is no blood in the stool, no weight loss, and so forth, it's highly likely that this is a functional disorder. On the other hand, if somebody is 65, and this is the age group where you need to also take into consideration malignancies like gastric cancer or colonic cancer, um, he, somebody who had never had any symptoms and then gradually he gets diarrhea, constipation, loses weight, then certainly there is a risk, that, a high risk that there is an abnormality 
which is structural, which needs proper treatment, diagnostic workup. And um, symptoms itself do, do not have a high predictive value. Therefore, it's a picture, the age, um, how the symptoms develop, whether symptoms are stable or get worse over time. Um, therefore, if somebody is below 40, the likelihood that this is not a life-threatening condition is very high. However, if the symptoms are severe or very severe, and in, in the clinical setting, you would ask the question, do the symptoms impact on your daily life? Are you in, unable to work? Are you unable to enjoy life, go out with friends? Then if this is the case, then the quality of life is impacted. And in these patients, proper diagnostic workup is required. Sometimes patients have very mild symptoms. They're very concerned about the symptoms. And then it might be sufficient to explain that there is a functional disease causing the symptoms and the reason why it's justified to assume that the functional is, for example, the long duration, um, that this is occasionally related to life stressors and so forth. But in many patients, in the end, you need to rule out a structural abnormality because otherwise the patient continues to be concerned about it. But certainly in the clinical setting, we need to avoid that tests are repeated. If a patient had one colonoscopy, um, in the setting of IBS-type symptoms, there's no need to repeat this procedure. Professor Holdman, uh, you're you're well known as uh, you know for your pioneer work in inflammation, how it plays out in in, in functional GI disorders. What are the top uh, few things that in today modern society in 2016 that that causes inflammation? Well, we do not know yet. But there is accumulating evidence that the change of our environment plays a very critical role. And most of us live in, in a, or in the, well, most of us, the, the academic work in this field is conducted in, in um, developed countries. And we realize that in all developed countries and in the developing countries, there's an increase of all kinds of inflammatory diseases. It's not just related to the gastrointestinal tract like inflammatory bowel disease. It holds true for a whole spectrum of conditions, rheumatoid arthritis, um, skin diseases, all kinds of allergies or lung diseases. And um, while some people would argue, well, it's environment pollution, um, there is a, also good evidence now that the hygiene and the improved hygiene in our environment is the key risk factor. In countries um, who have what we would label poor hygiene, the risk for inflammatory bowel diseases is very low. And as these countries develop, become more clean, are able to prevent gastrointestinal infections, the incidence of inflammatory bowel diseases increases, and in parallel, there's evidence that also functional GI disorders increase. And in recent years, this um, topic of microbiome has found a lot of attention in the research field. Microbiome it describes the, um, 
the totality of microbes, bacteria, which colonize the human body and interact with the immune system. And there are thousands of different microbes. And interestingly, these microbes are colonizing um, the surface of the human beings, but in particular the gastrointestinal tract from the moment a person is born. Um, after birth, a newborn is infected by the mother, the siblings, the father, and the whole environment. And the bacteria that colonize the gastrointestinal tract are like a fingerprint. They are very unique. They reflect the environment. And the immune system of every individuum is, has to deal with this bacteria. And in the end, there's a balance between the immune defense and the tolerance of this bacteria. And as our environment becomes cleaner, um, the tolerance obviously is affected. And nowadays in the civilized world, the diversity of bacteria is reduced. And there's good evidence that this reduced diversity is a risk factor for the development of all kinds of inflammatory disorders. Therefore, this is a really hot topic at the moment, and we are doing research on the mucosa-associated microbiome. And it's quite interesting to see if you just look at the diversity, therefore how many different bacteria colonize the mucosa in the duodenum, and how is the impairment of quality of life in patients. There's a direct inverse correlation. Therefore, the more the diversity is reduced, the more significant is the impairment of quality of life. And it's not very easy to add send some bacteria to the patients or give patients bacteria because their immune system, uh, when it has not learned to tolerate this bacteria, will not allow the bacteria to colonize the gut. Therefore, we have now, we develop an understanding of the underlying mechanisms, how these conditions emerged and become so prevalent in the Western world. That's a, a really great point. I, I, I got a little bit stuck on that point there, Professor, where you said that we can't just give some people bacteria because their immune systems haven't learned yet to be able to handle it. And I think that's really important because a lot of people are hung up on fecal transplanting and they're trying to um, skip steps and you know hope that somewhere along the line there'll be a saviour. And yes, you guys are working really hard in the research environment to try and find out more about it. I know that here in Melbourne, so there's some great gastroenterologists doing some amazing work here in Melbourne trying to find out about it as well and how what's a healthy stool or what's a healthy fecal, you know, transplant and how do, how do we make that stick, all that sort of thing. So it, it does appear that there's still some time to go before that's going to be ready to be able to be, you know, widespread used in, in society. But and, and so thanks for making that point. The one thing that I'm, a little, I'm really interested to know is, is that a lot of people try to hang some kind of a condition on their on their hat, they put it. They think it's another feather. So they think you know that it could be uh, fructose malabsorption, or it could be gluten sensitivity, or it could be casein sensitivity, or lactose sensitivity, or it could be um, a fiber issue, or or chili, or whatever else. There's so many different things there. And and off the call before when we were just chatting earlier on, you mentioned there's a lot of noise about some of these things. Is there as much validity with all of these? Um, 
condition specific or um, nutrient specific problems as as what there's as what there appears to be like is is, is it that relevant um, that's not a simple yes or no um, on the one hand virtually every patient um, has some nutrients which he doesn't tolerate and patients are smart most patients are able to avoid the nutrients and the food stuff which they don't tolerate, and therefore the problem should be solved. Um, on the other hand, um, we have conditions where we see or we know that very distinct immune processes are initiated by specific ingredients of food, and you mentioned gluten. And the, the, in the past, there was a clear-cut teaching and the concept that if specific patients with a very well-defined genetic makeup are exposed to gluten, they develop a so-called gluten-sensitive enteropathy or sprue, which is characterized by very specific morphological changes, um, characterized by the reduction of absorptive capacity and so forth. And then we had patients who reported that they don't tolerate gluten. And this patient typically underwent an endoscopy. Um, you rule out that this defined structural abnormality is present. Patients are being exposed to it. Therefore, they get the symptoms, but the uh, mucosa is normal. And then you say, well, this is all psychosomatic. There's nothing in it. Well, that's kind of like a, non, a non-celiac. That's the non-celiac gluten sensitivity that uh, Alexa Exactly. And then, yes. and then some... Some investigators did it in a double-blind fashion, blinded exposure to the gluten, and even patients were blinded to what they got. Some of them had, in a very reproductive way, reproducible way, symptoms. Therefore, there are um, intolerances of specific um, food components. Gluten, obviously, triggers a lot of immune processes. Therefore, it could be explained by an autoimmune process, which in this case doesn't result in the typically morphological changes of celiac disease or sprue. Um, nevertheless, the immune activation can cause symptoms, and therefore, indeed, there are some nutrients which are not well tolerated. On the other hand, there are lots of efforts, um, FODMAP diet, um, this is a diet which eliminates um, fermentable sugars um, and is intended to reduce the gas production in the gut. Some patients are unable to absorb these sugars, and as a consequence, these sugars then feed bacteria, and some of the bacteria produce gas. And if you reduce the amount of these sugars um, by a specific diet, the gas production is reduced, and this in turn improves symptoms. Therefore, it's a very logical step. Um, some patients have ex or experience improvement of symptoms. Clinical trials have demonstrated this. But now there are more and more questions. What are the long-term or implications if patients comply with this diet? Because we change our microbiome. If we deplete specific nutrients for the bugs which colonize the mucosa, in the small bowel or colon, what are the adverse effects 
if we reduce them. And at the moment, there are quite a bit of criticism or questions what could be the long-term effects. Therefore, in a clinical setting, if a patient benefits from a FODMAP diet, great, avoid this, but don't be too religious and too strict. Um, try to expose your gut as much as you can without suffering too many um, symptoms. Um, the middle path, which aims to control symptoms, I think is important. Therefore, don't be too strict when you try to avoid um, nutrients unless you have a real a gluten sensitive enteropathy or celiac disease, because then it's an all or none response. So, Professor, you mentioned microbiome you know, many times as we've gone through this. And uh, so, you know, do you think it's important for us to start focusing on, you know, things we might be doing to perhaps kill off our microbiome, like perhaps, you know, the use of chlorine and antibacterials and all those sort of things? And I guess on the flip side of that, you know, what sort of stuff can people do to start preparing their body so that it is ready for those, um, you know, bacteria, the beneficial bacteria, but also introducing some of those beneficial bacteria back into their bodies? Um. That's a very good and also very difficult question. Um, I mean, first of all, our environment um, has become clean. And I think we shouldn't strive to get the environment dirty. But the effect which we see in relation to the reduced diversity is not only due to this clean environment, it is also probably due to a generational effect our grand-grand-grandfathers probably had a much more diverse microbiome in their GI tracts as compared to the microbiome which we nowadays have. Because over time and with the progress of civilization, our environment has become cleaner. And it's not something for the last 10 or 50 years. It's a much longer process. Therefore, human mankind is depleted a bit of this diversity, and we need to think about how we can restore this balance long-term. Therefore, some of the research which is being done certainly targets to identify what is a healthy microbiome, and maybe one day we will start um, a preventive initiative that a newborn is exposed to a spectrum of bacteria with very defined, well-defined capabilities, which has protect, protective effects with regard to, for example, all kinds of inflammatory disorders. But this is really um, in the future, and as I said, there are groups who are working on this. Professor, we've only got maybe 40 seconds left, so we haven't got a whole lot of time, so I'll keep my question short. There are some um, treatment strategies that people can employ. Obviously, there's probiotic therapy, which you know we've briefly touched on, which will affect the microbiome. There's fermented foods that some people could use as well. Um, there's some herbal preparations too that some people have used in the past um, and successfully in the past. And I know I do understand that you've done some work with some herbal preparations. Um, one of them is a product called Iberigast, which is a practitioner-only product. Uh, what have you found with Iberigast and other treatment models? Well, many treatments which are nowadays available target very specific receptors. I mean, acid inhibition with upper abdominal symptoms, maybe serotonergic receptors in the lower gut. The problem is the real patients typically have an overlap. Therefore, 
if you want to treat them successfully, you need to target different mechanisms at the same time. And one of the advantages of herbal medicines is that they typically are an extract of a number of different plants, and every plant has a variety of bioactive substances. Therefore, with right extracts and components, you at the same time target different mechanisms. And interestingly, this herbal preparation you mentioned, the Iberogast, has been shown to be beneficial in upper GI symptoms like functional dyspepsia, as well as in patients who suffer from pure IBS. Therefore, this is a beneficial effect that it works across a spectrum of symptoms. That's that's great news. That's really good. Uh, I love that. Look, Professor Holtman, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been uh, a fabulous interview. A lot of people will learn a lot of things, um, and particularly uh, with, with greater detail. You did mention in there that I, I, again I got hung up on on something that you said, which which I loved was don't go too hard. Don't be so one hundred percent that you el- eliminate um, things from your gastrointestinal tract that maybe down the track. Um, you will require or need to eat because it sets up a problem. So I like that you said that. So thank you. Thanks very much, Professor. You're very welcome. Guys, make sure you uh, to join us on Facebook and I'd love for you, us to, for you to actually have a conversation about this. I'd love to hear more about what you thought about this podcast. You might actually have to go back and we listen to because there's a lot of little gems there and a lot of highlights. So thank you so much, Professor, again. Share, please share this podcast with your friends and your fr- families and other strangers you think need a wellness update. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And while you're there, please give us a great rating and also leave a comment there. Until next week, begin creating wellness into your lives. Lead by example. Let's change the world's health together. Join us next week on The Wellness Guy Show. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.